Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. It's always great when you have the opportunity to talk with somebody who really knows what they're talking about. It's even better when they're a really lovely person as well too. Mike Brackett is a really good bloke. He's the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. He's a professor in the Child Study Center at the Yale School of Medicine at Yale University. His research focuses on the role of emotions and emotional intelligence in learning and decision-making and creativity relationships, health and performance. He's got programs that are in thousands of schools around the world and I know, listeners, that you're going to want to think about his program in your school as well. I can't wait to talk to Mark. Adriano, let's go. Phil, it's so wonderful to be with you again. How is the humidity treating you in uh, fair Sydney today? Well, look, you know, it's, 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 my beard is somewhat frizzy at the moment, Adriano. Um, how's, how's Sunshine West treating you at the moment? Well, the truth of the matter is, is our, our Premier announced that we are now free the other day. So uh, most Victorians will be feeling very seedy this morning because no doubt they've been up all hours of the night uh, for the first time ever having a beer in the first six months because uh, every bit of hospitality has been up since then. But enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our wonderful guest today. I'm really excited to have Mark on our particular show. Mark, I'm going to launch straight into the very first question. And that's a question we ask all of our guests. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> you want the abridged version, I'm guessing. You know, so the, the life story is the complicated one, right? Which I'll just give you the brief. I had a difficult childhood from abuse to bullying to lots of unpleasant things. And the conclusion I came to as an adult was that I was kind of robbed of my emotional life. And hence why I wrote a book called Permission to Feel. But I was blessed that there was one magical adult in my life who happened to be my mother's brother, Uncle Marvin. And um, he was the one adult who, unlike others, asked me that simple but yet complex question, which is, how are you feeling? And he paused, he listened, and he didn't say, you know, toughen up. He said, well, let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's see what we can do together. And so I, I credit my uncle for giving me the permission to feel, and I completely dedicate my career to him based on those experiences I had as a kid. What's really interesting, um, and thank you very much for sharing such a personal story there. What's interesting is that one of the things that we have discovered having these conversations with people across the globe is the inherent strength that comes from moments of deep vulnerability, where, where each individual, there's a moment in their life, whether it's a decision or a circumstance or an event or a person that has been really influential. In that conversation that you had with your uncle, what was the key takeaway that you had that has helped really shape so much of what you do today? It's like the core of my whole research career, which is that feelings matter, right? Mm -hmm. How you feel is the driver, you know, of everything from your 
ability to learn, to build and maintain good relationships, to make informed decisions to your mental health, to your creativity, and that having language to describe your feelings is important to be able to just communicate what the heck's going on inside of you. But even more importantly, having that caring, loving person on the outside that listens and doesn't judge makes all the difference. Mark, so much of the research that we've been looking at with schools around the world around character and character development and more latterly around the notion of the role of wellness in learning suggests to us that if students don't feel as though they belong, if they don't feel as though they're welcome and they don't feel well, they're not going to go on and do the things that schools were built to do. And yet schools really struggle with the notion that feelings and emotions and wellness and belonging comes first before performance. People jump straight to the performance stuff, the academic stuff too quickly. And the systems that we have in schools seem to uh, prioritize that which is efficient over that which is perhaps a little messier, but a little bit more real, which is the way we're feeling. How do we help people in schools to put the things that really matter first? I think a number of things around that question. The first is that the adults who are raising and teaching kids never had an adequate emotion education. So they don't really see the value because they haven't felt it, they haven't experienced it. And they say, well, I made it, I'm successful, I'm a, I run a school, I'm a, you know, whatever. And um, you know, they don't realize that they're emotionally unself-aware <laughs> and that they're not maybe the best possible role model for healthy emotion management. But that's, you know, put that aside for a minute. And I think the other piece of it is, is that it's a new science. You know, it's a new science of emotional intelligence. It's been around 30 years. So people just haven't, haven't, you know, don't know it and they don't really get it. You know, that emotions are information, that emotions are data, that they drive our attentional capacity, that they are underneath our decision-making. And so I think when people understand how the brain operates, they make better choices around what to infuse into the education system. You have, you've been quoted in saying that, that I want everyone to become an emotional scientist. This kind right. of quote uh, for mine speaks to the notion of this curious explorer of one's own emotional competency and, of course, that of the other. You've kind of touched upon that a little bit just then. What is an emotional scientist? I mean, I got that idea from my Uncle Marvin because he was the curious explorer. He wasn't the critical judge. He didn't clump my, you know, like you feel like shit or you feel great. You know, that's that's there's no information there. There's no curiosity there. So what does it mean to feel great. Are you happy, excited, elated, content, tranquil, peaceful, relaxed? What does it mean to feel like crap? You know, is it down, disappointment, devastated, hopeless? Is it anxiety and fear and overwhelm? Is it anger? Is it enraged? Because what we find in our work is that the more granular you are in terms of describing your feelings, the easier it is to know what to do with your feelings. So the emotion scientist is really wants to get granular. The emotion judges is like good or bad, busy, let me go. And then finally, when it comes to managing feelings, you think about this in terms of the work on mindset. There are people who like my father. My father would say, son, this is how I deal with my anger. Deal with it. I'm like, yeah, dad, I've been dealing with it, you know, in therapy for 20 years and, you know, becoming a doctor of psychology. <laughs> and then there is, you know, the one who was like my uncle Marvin, who was like, I know it's been tough. You know, I see things aren't going so well for you right now. Let's talk about the options here what the possibilities are for you to manage your feelings in a way that you can have better health 
you know, not said that way, but done that way. And so again, the scientist, open, curious, reflective, growth mindset, the judge closed, critical, fixed mindset. In your book, uh, Permission to Feel, um, you, you share with us uh, our ability to feel, understand, and kind of use emotions in, in uh, effective ways so that we can continue to grow and, and, and evolve. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about how we go about harnessing our emotions to harness our ultimate possibility? You bet I can. Uh, <laughs> And so I think the first step is going back to the title of my book, which is Permission to Feel. I think that we skip that step a lot of the time. We go right into skill building without really creating environments at home, at school, at work, where people can be their true, full feeling selves without feeling exposed or judged. And that, that concept is very important to me in the work because I think that so many people have to hide their feelings or can't express them because they have all these weird mindsets. I'm going to be perceived as being weak or inferior or emotional. And then the second step is you gotta become that emotion scientist and understand why emotions matter and not be judgmental about them. And then you can start working on the skills. And obviously in my work, we call them the ruler skills, recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing, and regulating emotion. And to me, that's life's work because being aware of your own and other's emotions is is a, is a flow in life, you know? And for example, right now with this pandemic, I'm pretty self-aware, so I think, but you know, my goodness, I'm having feelings that I never knew I was gonna have. And just being still and trying to identify like, what am I really feeling? Am I anxious? Am I overwhelmed? Am I stressed? And so the first step in emotional intelligence is that R-U-L, like what's going on in my body? What's going on in my head? What's my energy like? What's causing those feelings to happen? All right, what's the word? Like, what am I feeling? And that I call like the, the three skills that help us to identify accurately our own and other people's emotions. And then I have to decide, you know, I don't know you guys that well. Can I be my true, full feeling self with you? Am I comfortable? Am I safe to be open and authentic and honest about what I'm really feeling? Or do I have to monitor and mask? And then what's my strategy for managing my feelings? Am I in the best emotional place to do this podcast with you guys? Or do I need to shift into a different place? And so that's the regulation piece. And so I think we go through life from the moment we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, doing this either subconsciously or consciously. And some people do it well, and those are the emotionally intelligent people. And some people deny, suppress, repress, blame, act out, and do it unsuccessfully. Mark, your ruler approach, it's evidence-based. It's so thoroughly backed by research. It's systemic. It's in over 2,000 schools across the United States and in other countries and, uh, you know, in Australian schools as well, too. You've published 125 scholarly articles. You've won the awards and so on. There's so much science sitting by self-esteem by the way i needed that today uh, no, it's, it's, man it's it, man we just want to bring the love on here you know that's what that's what it's like hanging around with an art teacher a lot you you you, you learn how to let those emotions out you know it takes me away from my sort of ascetic training as a history and latin teacher yeah. um, there's so much that you've been able to demonstrate about the science and so much about the impact i want to take you to that teacher that we talked about earlier or that administrator who was not schooled in this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's that moment where they're going from being unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent in this space. And their mastery is really being challenged 
because this whole new world that they just don't have a lexicon for, they don't have tools around that. And suddenly we're turning around and saying, hey, we need you to do this in your school. We need you to do this in your classroom. How do we help those teachers to take that big step forward and up? I think you can do it through the anecdotes, which I sometimes do, you know, the storytelling about stress and trauma and how it impacted your life. And then some people relate well to that. Not everybody likes that. Some people want the hardcore data and the science. And so for me, it's just about sharing people how the brain works, you know, and my own story, you know, which is now, you know, I can show in science. I was a failing student. It's clear I'm pretty freaking smart but I couldn't function academically because I was in survival mode. Mm-hmm. I was, when you're bullied horrifically in school, when you're afraid to sit still because you're gonna to be tormented, your brain is not in learning mode, right? Your brain is in fight, flight, freeze mode. People have to understand that. You have to understand the science of how learning happens. And if you don't, then you should not be working in schools. And I just think that's so important. And then the list goes on in terms of, for example, I've done research which shows that teachers' mood states influences the way they evaluate students, but they're not aware of it. So when I talk to a, a school leader, a principal of a school, and I'm like, did you, do you know about that research? That you know how teachers feel shifts their objective grading? Oh, what do you mean? Well, here you go. Look at that. And then, oh, wow, so emotions do matter. How people's facial expressions and body language are contagious in a classroom, right? So a stressed out teacher is a stressed out classroom. And here's the interesting thing about emotional contagion is that the kids are gonna be stressed out and they're not even gonna know why because they've caught the stress from the teacher without being aware of it, but yet it affects their performance. So, you know, for me, it's always about using the science to show people or challenge people Last thing I wanted to share, uh, recently I did a talk for about 50 heads of like superintendents of big districts. And I said, what's the difference between stressed, overwhelmed, anxiety, and pressure? Like what's the, really, what's the difference? And I share that with you because I took a picture of what they wrote, nothing, there's no difference, nothing. And then when I share with them that they're completely different emotional experiences that would require totally different strategies, all of them you know, felt like they were slightly embarrassed but because they had no emotion education, they, they weren't asked to think about emotions very much. They just, you know, blew it off. Like, ah, it's all the same stuff. And when they realized that it wasn't and that it would impact a child's learning or a teacher's engagement, all of a sudden they cared. It's really interesting sitting here listening to you uh, share so much of your not only lived experience, of course, but your extensive research. And, and it's clear to me that what I'm hearing you say is that wellness and the full flourishing of the individual cannot be separated from the learning. These two things are intrinsically linked to one another. And what's also interesting is that I feel that we've been, we've been paralyzed in schooling for far too long, educating by living in a world without truly actually feeling it. And what, what has been really clear to me, particularly during this pandemic, in, in a place like Victoria, where we actually are facilitating learning and schooling remotely for around six months. One of the things that have been really amplified in that process, Mark, has been three key components. The first is that we need to build wellness into any delivery model of schooling, that people matter and that people need people. The second component was that we need to shift the learning and mix it up 
not just from this kind of synchronous sit and get delivery model, but one that that launches from asynchronous that taps into the intrinsic motivation of the individual, their passions, their interests, and helps them this, on this journey of self-determination and self-actualization. And the third component is where do we build community into the construct of school in a really more amplified way that goes beyond the sporting carnival, you know, the arts production, where does the real essence of community come into play? So I suppose my question for you is so much of what we attempt to do in schools is ultimately around their academic proficiency. But as Phil rightly pointed out, so much of our research looks at character and wellness. How do we continue to help the entire community of a school better understand the, the position of wellness and, and emotional competency in the construct of what schooling should look like going forward? Well, I think, you know, I work at a university, you know, that doesn't accept people based on their emotional intelligence, their ability to maintain healthy relationships or their mental health, right? It's about test scores, right? It's about accomplishment. But yet 50 to 60% of my students have terrible problems with anxiety and depression. And so I think that we have to rethink education because what we value is getting into these top universities. We don't value how people feel once they get there or how they felt on their journey there. And the truth is when you ask any educator or parent, like, what do you hope for your kid? They don't say things, I want my kid to have high SAT scores. You know, that's what we use here in the States for entry. And they say, I want my kid to find love. I want my kid to have passion and purpose. I want my kid to be able to achieve their dreams and be happy and healthy. But yet we spend no time at all, to be honest with you, from preschool up until high school, you know, thinking about those things. As a matter of fact, we almost deny people the permission to be their true full feeling selves and only focus on their cognitive academic self. And I just think that we have to reevaluate what it means to be a high school graduate right? What are the outcomes that we're looking for? If they're strictly academic, then we're never going to put a lot of emphasis on the social and emotional. Mark, it's, it's fabulous hearing you give such a clear and compelling rationale for taking a holistic approach to education and working out what comes first and what really matters to getting the things that matter. We talk with, um, we talk with folk a lot about the notion of graduate outcomes for an educational process that prepare students to thrive in their world. And so much of what is in there is about their dispositions and about their habits and about the people that they are much more than the knowledge and the skills that they're going to have. I, I, I note that your book is entitled Permission to Feel. Adriano has been writing a blog for years now called Permission is Triumph. So I feel as though I'm sort of wedged in between two permissionists, which is um, <laughs> a lovely, it's a lovely place to be. You referred just then to the notion of purpose. I think the notion of living a life of purpose is absolutely critical to everything that we do. I think if we can help people find something of value, something which is worthwhile, then they can live a life that ultimately will be well lived. How can we help create the conditions whereby students, learners, teachers for that matter, anybody in an educational institution, particularly one which perhaps is um, focusing too much on public examinations and test scores and things that have limited importance, how do we help them to connect with a sense of purpose and to nourish it? 
I think some of these things are highly developmental, you know, and I don't want to put too much pressure on, you know, the kindergartner or the first grader, the year one student, as you might say in Australia, you know, uh, to have purpose in life. Like that's a lot of pressure. I'm still trying to figure out what the heck my purpose is. Um, I know that I'm passionate about things. And so I think that we have to ignite passion first and purpose comes later. And which means that we have to create the conditions for children to discover these things because you can't teach it. It's not something like you can't teach someone how to be passionate. You can model it as a teacher. You can model it as a parent. You can provide opportunities for children to discover the things that bring them curiosity and fascination and give them even more opportunities to go deeper in those areas. And to me, that's what we have to put more into our education system a lot more of the student-directed experiences as opposed to the um, adult knower sage, you know, imparting knowledge upon the child. Mark, um, Mal Meninga is, uh, is a very great Australian. Uh, he was the captain of our National Rugby League team. He's the coach of our National Rugby League team. Right now, he's, he's helping the Queenslanders prepare for a series against New South Wales, which probably doesn't mean a lot to you, but it's, you know, in, in, in our part of the world, these things matter. But he's also... A terrific, absolutely terrific fellow, and he's working on a program with us at the moment. One of the things that he keeps saying is that we need to take pressure off young people as they are forming their competencies so that they have a chance to live properly. And in your response just then, you alluded to this well-intentioned fallacy that we keep having in education, putting pressure on people too young to reach a point that they're just not ready to do. How do we help people to understand that we need to give people room, time, space, to be curious, to enjoy, to play, to do all of those sorts of things? Well, I mean, think about it. Developmentally, it makes no sense. You know, like, what do I, what the heck would I know of a, as a 15 year old to be like the director of a center for emotional intelligence at Yale University? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, I don't even, I didn't know what that was until I became it. And then I'm not even sure I want it actually, now that I have it. Um, you know, I'm used to, I wanna go sit in coffee shops and write again instead of leading people all the time. And so like, this is a, this is a journey. And, and like, I think that we fail to understand development, like really like how people develop. And that, you know, the goal of middle school is not to prepare you to be a lawyer, right? The goal of middle school is to help you, you know, get through middle school. <laughs> and so I just, I think that's the number one thing. And, you know, we don't know what we don't know until we're in it. You know, I think about my own career. I grew up in a, as we call here, a very blue collar family. My father didn't have a college education. He was an air conditioning repairman. Um, good guy. But when I told my father, you know, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor. Why would you want to be an actor? You're going to be in poverty. You know, and then I wanted to be a professor. Why would you want to be a professor? You know, there, you know, you, get, you have to spend all this money to get a degree and then you make nothing. And so to me, my biggest learning about my childhood was that I needed to learn how to think critically about everything that everybody told me so I wouldn't listen to them as much as I did. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, what, what, that's what I think we have to be teaching is that deep critical thinking, that deep perspective taking, that deep analysis, instead of what we teach, which is mostly convergent thinking, like how do you, how do you get the answer to the test and how do you get the A in the class? And if we constantly build that muscle of self-discovery 
and critical thinking and perspective taking and empathy, you know, all of a sudden it metastasizes in a way, you know, where you find your purpose in life. I think a lot of that convergent thinking is just uh, sitting in a history class there, Mark. Not, of course, in a visual arts class, divergent thinking is the, the construct. Isn't that right, Phil? Oh, of course, Adriana. <laughs> um, what's what's interesting? Sorry, Mark, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like in my whatever grade level I was in, you know, I had to memorize like 35 different kinds of fungi. Really? <laughs> What is that going to do for me? Like maybe if well, I it, it might make a really good pasta sauce at some point. Yeah, but I or... can't see much other purpose in it. Mark, Mark one of one of the things that that schools really struggle with is stuff like that. Uh, it's the stuff of school, which people just dig into again and again and again. And you know, Adriano, of course, lightheartedly just having a little dig at history teachers. But what you know, what plagues my my original profession. Um, is this obsession with facts and dates and so on rather than what they mean and to what purpose they might be put. And people lose perspective around this. How do we help people to um, stand back and see the development of the child rather than rush to agency with, with exams and so on? Again, we have to change, you know, what that whole model of like what gets assessed, gets taught, you know, that we teach so much to that. And because that's like what we think is the next step. You know, like that's the, the step to get into college is this test and then getting graduate school, the next test. And you've been like ba basically preparing for tests until you're in your 30s or 40s if you go to graduate school. And then you're like, really? This is what I've been doing in my life, preparing for tests. I just think that we have to really just rethink the purpose of education. And like you were saying, and I was saying earlier, purpose, productivity. I want to push back a little bit on this, on the pressure piece. I do think a little pressure is good. Um, like, you know, life, the life is difficult. You know, there's a lot of mean people in the world and a lot of people who haven't wanted me to achieve my dreams, uh, whether it be envy or jealousy or whether it be fear of me. You know, I was working in a school once where they tried to sabotage my work because they felt that I was going to make people so self-aware <laughs> that nobody would want to work there anymore. <laughs> it was fascinating. Yeah, it's, uh, those that 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 happens more frequently than than you would mm -hmm. think. I mean, we've been working with schools now for uh, individual schools for over a decade now, and you know, I reckon probably in twenty percent of schools you go into, you come across a handful of people, usually I think feeling pretty threatened, who actively sabotage the work that's going on because any anything is better than the threatening of the status quo. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. it's it's weird stuff, isn't it? Well, like the leader doesn't want everyone underneath them to be so, so self-aware because then that exploits them and, you know, then they're, they're exposed. That's why we need leaders to be trained in this stuff. You, you touched upon the word assessment and um, you might not accept the premise of this question uh, or you may, but schools, you know, they seem to want to measure everything. I think we know that, right? Um, and I think Phil, myself and you accept that a greater emphasis on social and emotional competency is crucial to the future of schooling, to help young people to feel and, and to, to get closer to the kind of um, purposeful action in their life and their self-actualization, not only for themselves, but of course for place and for other. What does assessment for SEL or wellness look like? Well, for me, it looks like tools that help people to grow. So I say this all the time and 
people struggle with it. There's no right or wrong when it comes to regulating emotions. Mm-hmm. There's helpful and unhelpful for who you are based on your religion, your orientation, your race, whatever it might be. And so I can't be the knower because I don't live in your shoes. I can be the compassionate emotion scientist educator who supports you in discovering what works for you to support you in managing your feelings of anxiety or whatever it might be. And so what does that mean in terms of assessment? It means trying to figure out are the strategies that this child is using supporting them in dealing with their feelings. And that's it. I mean, and that's what what people don't like about that is that it's not like concrete. There's no like, you can't get an A in that strategy, but yet it's the most important thing because the strategies that might work best for me might not work best for you. Uh, Mark, I'm interested in this notion of tools to allow people to grow because it compels us to think of the purpose of education as being a process of forming that doesn't stop. And we get caught up in education with the notion that at some point, children leave out particular care. And so therefore, that must be it. It must be over. There are particular milestones. There are particular benchmarks along the way. And there are various different pressures around that. How do we help people to think about what the purpose of a school might actually be? Gosh, you're asking like, these are like, this is like you know, profound questions that I'm like, it's, you know, it's, it's dinner time for me. I'm not sure I'm prepared for this. I, I think I have the chutzpah to ask the questions and I think you have the depth to answer them, Mark. You don't know me that well. I think going back to what we spoke about earlier is that the goal of education is to help people have and enjoy, you know, that life that's worth living. And so that discovery of self, that discovery of purpose and passion, you know, for me is what it's all about. There is no outcome, in my opinion. You know, yes, of course, everybody has to learn how to read. They have to learn how to write. They have to learn how to do basic math. But, you know, the truth is, I learned enough math by the time I was in year seven to get through life. You know, I took the advanced math classes. I didn't even know what the heck was going on in calculus, to be honest with you. I'm not sure. I'm not sure many people ever do. Yeah. I'm like, why do I need to learn this? It's interesting, sort of. But, you know, I'm not bashing it. I think for people who want to learn that, it's important. And being exposed to complicated concepts is great. It forces you to struggle a little bit, which is important in life. But again, I'm reminded right now by this question of how context makes such a difference. I was in a school district here in the United States recently, and I was just noticing how the leaders were so okay with mediocrity. And it just made me sick. I I was so distraught and I left there feeling in such despair that they didn't feel like their job was to ignite the fire, right? And to pour fuel into the fire and to create that endless curiosity. And it just depressed me because to me, that's, that's what it's all about. For me, the power in the word permission is in granting oneself the kind of formal consent to do something. It's, it's the necessary yes towards real movement, purposeful action, and kind of self-actualization. What are some of the the tips or skills that you could share with our listeners to help them move from a position of stagnation, of standing still, possibly in the realm of fear, to the liberation of permission and yes? 
Well, I think, you know, in terms of this, you know, my own thinking around this with the permission to feel concept is that we fail to recognize that for children, the adults have to create the context for that permission mm-hmm. to be a reality. And so by way of example, the abuser, when I was a child, threatened me that I couldn't share what was happening. And so no permission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my mother and father, good people, but not emotionally intelligent. So my mother was had terrible anxiety and she would say things like, oh my goodness, I'm having a nervous breakdown. And so I learned very quickly, don't talk to mommy about your feelings. My father, tough guy from New York City, son, toughen up. I learned another message. Don't tell daddy how you're feeling because he's just going to tell you how to toughen up. I went to school. I was bullied in the classroom. I watched teachers see me being bullied and they looked the other way. And so what happens is that you are trapped with your feelings. There's nowhere for them to go. The hatred, the anger, the fear, they go somewhere. They go into eating disorders. They go into self-cutting. They go into yelling, screaming. They go into the list goes on. But those aren't what we call healthy strategies, right? They're strategies that are self-destructive and other destructive. And so step one for me has always been that the adults have to be the best possible role models for kids, right? If a parent never talks about how they're feeling and they, oh, everything's fine, good, good, good. Then there's no real human being that's raising that child. (laughs) And so that role model has to be able to have deep conversations that role model has to share how they truly feel without making the child fear, you know, that that child has to take care of them, which is tricky. But I think all of this work in terms of the permission aspects comes from the leaders and teachers and parents in our nation being role models. Mark, there's so much that you're talking about within your own personal history that influences your professional life. Um, as a kid in primary school, I got bullied terribly, absolutely terribly, and then went into the senior school. I had to leave school at, um, you know, at the start of, at, of what was called set, you know, second form at mm-hmm. that point or, or grade eight because it was just too much. And the adults all around simply denied that it was happening. And it was too hard, way too hard, way too hard for them along the way. That type of flawed response continues in schools today. We know lots more about bullying. We try and do things uh, to intervene. Uh, my own children would, 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 would rather suffer anything at the hands of a bully than allow an adult to intervene because they simply don't trust adults can affect a positive outcome when it comes to peers and peer relationships and so on. Is bullying just something that is a natural but undesirable aspect of human nature? And if so, how do we, how do we, how do we get on the front foot with this sort of thing with schools? Because, you know, knowing about bullying hasn't solved the problems. No, I, don't, I think conflict is a natural part of growth. But, you know, bullying has multiple components to it, right? There is the power imbalance. Um, there's the intent to be very harmful. And then there's the repetition. If you know the science, you know, when I give my presentations on bullying and I talk about how bullying affects brain development, then you realize that it is a human right for a child to be safe in a school because you're literally changing the trajectory of their development. That freaks people out, but it's just the way it is. It's true. Trauma changes the way the brain develops. And so when you have that mindset, I think it changes the way you think about dealing with bullying in schools. I think most people like rules. 
you know, zero tolerance policies, you know, rules around whatever. And what I found is that, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't change the way people think and feel and behave. You have to create environments where emotions matter. So in our work, for example, we talk about creating an emotional intelligence charter where people ask each other, how do you want to feel as a student in this classroom? I want to feel respected. I want to feel valued. I want to feel appreciated. I want to feel connected. All right, well, what does that look like? What do we do in order for people to feel that way? Because emotions are not just individual phenomenon. They're, they're cultural phenomena. They're, they, they create the climate. They create the culture of our classrooms and our schools. And so then you have that as a talk about assessment. You've got data now because you can ask every kid every week, are you feeling this way? If not, what's going on? What do we need to do to create the feelings that we all said we wanted to feel? Really fascinating, Mark, because schools are communities where every single individual in that community is home to a, a unique life. One, one that ultimately, what you're talking about is this profound sense of psychological safety where everyone's known, valued and loved, ultimately. I, I can recall an occasion where I started in a role of the deputy principal of a school. And in my first week of that role, I had um, people in, in middle leader positions who oversee the young people at that school come to me and say, Adriana, you need to meet the 15 worst kids in the school. And so I was already jarred by that phrase because, you know, they've already labelled these young people in a particular way. So they have... They have position their prejudice to and and you know and and impact impacted my thinking as well anyway i sat down with these 15 young people individually and i'm public enemy number one at this school at this stage by the way because um on the first day there was lots of kids that were sent home because their hair length was wrong or, or, they, or they had piercings or whatever and 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 so i'm public enemy number one because everyone's thinking that it's my rules that i've come in with but anyway so i'm meeting with these young people and then what happened was I got the adults in the room after I've met with all 15 young people. And when they were in the room with me, I started reading these stories that these young people shared with me about their experience in life and their experience in school. And the common denominator was that they didn't have an adult champion, that in fact, they felt that the adults had abandoned them and that the adults um, had made up their mind about their worth and these kids simply played to that narrative because it was easier to do that than to expose themselves to exactly who they were. Interestingly, this was a school that had a vertical system. So some of these young people were in that person's house for a five-year period and yet that, that educator didn't know some of these things about these young people that made them feel the way they felt. All they could see was the deficit. One of the things that was prevalent in this school was there was no positive relationships policy. There was no overarching documents that showed an aspiration of who we would like to become in terms of being more. What they had was a five level document of all the things you couldn't do. Right. <laughs> so, so what happened there, of course, is the standard, which became the habit and the culture was a deficit. And very quickly, we had to turn that around and we invited students into the conversation around how do we flip that? 
how do we go from if you do this, this is your consequence, as opposed to this is how we welcome people into our community. This is how we make people feel included in our community, you know, different language. And can I say, it was the students that led that change because they were more in tune with the impact of the rules than the adults were. Mm -hmm. I'm sharing this story with you because I'm wondering how we can include young people in the co-creation of our communities more and more going forward and trusting in them as being intelligent beings that have something to share and contribute in terms of their agency and in terms of their voice. I think all we have to do is ask. As a matter of fact, in a very big study that I did about five years ago with 45,000 high school students across the United States, I asked them first, how are you feeling? How do you want to feel? And what would help you feel that way? And they were tired, they were bored, they were stressed. Top three feelings, they didn't want to feel that way. They wanted to feel inspired and energized and excited and respected and happy. The number one thing that they shared with us that would help them feel more pleasant emotions was having a voice. I want a voice. I want, to have my, I want my voice to matter. I don't want to be the recipient. I want to be part of the conversation. The second was, I want learning to be more relevant and meaningful to my personal goals. Like, I want to make sure that there's no alignment here. Like, I, like everything is already created for me. There's no me in the in the curriculum. And so to me, that's just so clear about what is gonna help kids have a better learning experience. In our work with high schools and middle schools, we have a, a new approach actually, which we call Inspired Students. It's a free website that has resources for schools to help students have more voice. And what we find is um, we actually have an app we're building to support this where students become the kind of detectors or the, de the detectives, I should say, in their school. And here's the interesting thing that we find when it comes to culture and climate of a high school. You know, in traditional research, you want high reliability. You want assessments to be reliable because there's a consistency in the way people respond. We find in our work with high schools, it's the inconsistencies that are the most interesting. The black and brown kids are saying this school doesn't represent me. The lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender kids are saying like, no one cares about me here. And when you just pull everybody together, what you find is that you get an average that has no meaning. So to me, that's the ultimate piece. And then you look at these differences and you start solving for those differences. And you know, certainly, you know, the adults aren't gonna have the solutions because they're not the people who have experienced what the kids have experienced. You have to ask the kids what their needs are and give them some empower, empowerment um, to be the change makers. Imagine a school developing itself from the inside out where it was about the aggregation of the many, many lived experiences rather than the imposition of an ill-fitting average on everybody else. What a wonderful aspiration for a school. Mark, thank you so much for sharing with us today so much about yourself and your very, very impressive work not just for its, uh, its, its scholarly nature, which, you know, for an academic like me, I look at you and I'm, I'm quite intimidated by, by the, the, the depth and quality of your research, but more importantly, by how approachable it is and how it teaches us that the answer to educating for humanity is to learn about our own humanity 
and to pass on what we can and where we can't do it ourselves then give voice to those who really matter thank you so much mark um, um when you're uh, when your app is finished we'd, we'd we'd love to showcase it further you know that sound, sounds like yeah. a great project it's gonna be it's a great project and it's developed by the students they're the people who developed it they help to write the questions they help to help us unpack the experiences so yeah i think Again, you know, the challenge with the work with students is that they still are in a system where the adults are running the system. So again, going back to that concept of permission, right? The adults do have to provide that permission and they have to let go in order to let students flourish. Well, I, I, we're going to let go of you now because because it's, it's dinner time where you are. It's been a long day. It's been a long year. We really, really appreciate it. I have a friend who texts me, I've been sitting in the park for five minutes. I'm like, it's freezing outside. <laughs> well, you better go and get them. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much, Mark. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.